Hello, sweet listeners. This is Kendall Fisher, your host of the NetSuite podcast, and boy, do I have a surprise for you this episode. Renowned podcaster and co-author of the best-selling book, Freakonomics, Stephen Dubner is joining us this episode. I know, I could barely contain myself going into the interview. He has some awesome insight, as I'm sure you'd guess, especially pertaining to the state of the world right now. In fact, we dive into the old rules of business and why they no longer apply these days, especially amid COVID-19 and the craziness that we've um, dubbed 2020. He also reveals some lessons we can all learn during this time to help improve our businesses and honestly ourselves moving forward. Dubner also talks about the 13% increase in meetings as most businesses have moved to a work from home environment. I know I've certainly felt that. I'm sure many of you listening have too. And he talks about how we can all make these meetings better, both as leaders within the meeting and as participants. He concludes by discussing the importance of data fluency and how it can help business leaders make more logical decisions, especially in times of uncertainty. You certainly won't want to miss this one-of-a-kind episode coming up next. You're listening to the NetSuite Podcast, where we discuss what's happening within NetSuite, why we're doing it, and where we're heading in the future. We'll dive into the details about the software and the people at NetSuite who are behind all the moving parts. We'll also feature customer growth stories, discussing the ups and downs of running a company, and how one integrated system can help your business continue to scale. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining the NetSuite podcast. Hey, Kendall. Nice to be here. Thanks. This is so exciting for our listeners, but I also have to admit, I kind of feel like I need to be on my absolute A-game to be interviewing (laughs) you right now. (laughs) It's definitely intimidating. You're, You're one of the best. Well, you only hear the edited tape. (laughs) <laughs> on Freakonomics Radio, so you don't know how bad I truly am, um, oh. but you'll find out now. Now you'll hear the unedited <laughs> version. You'll let me know. I find that hard to believe, but let's dive right in. I want to start off with Freakonomics, in which you wrote about the old rules of business no longer applying. How has 2020 and all of its craziness influenced the way you feel about that now? Yeah, I'd say... A lot, um, for starters. I think the biggest single thing I've noticed in, I mean, if we, you know, business is such a broad word to use because it means so many different kinds of firms and individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the most terrible things about this terrible thing of the pandemic is how much, um, you know, some sectors are just crushed just out of bad luck while others right next to them, you know, are doing fine, even better. So mm-hmm. there's just all this oddity to observe among, you know, the the mourning, the tragedy and so on. But I think the biggest observation I've had about this is that the people who are really good and resilient and knew what they're doing are doing very well. Yeah. <laughs> and the ones who weren't, are not. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, the reason that your doctor will tell you that physical exercise is important is not so that you're like healthier in the moment. It's like it you build up essentially sort of a reservoir 
of, you know, good, <laughs> good physical health and the same for why if people meditate or do some kind of mindfulness, it's not that you're just trying to maximize what you're getting at that moment. You're actually creating this whole system of resilience and grit and learning how to deal with things. And, I, and that's what I've noticed most from this is that the people who are really thoughtful about building good systems, the people who are really thoughtful about, you know, knowing whether, I, I don't, you know, I work with a small team. I think that's a lot easier. I think if you work with a big team, it's been a huge challenge to do mm-hmm. it virtually. But if you're really good at being a leader like that or being a team member, then, you know, the interruption is a lot less. And it's the people who didn't build, I, I guess it's like, is it the three little pigs? Is that the story? <laughs> There's the straw house, the yeah. something house, the wood house, and then the brick house. Like the brick house is fine, but yeah. you know, it takes a lot more effort and it's more expensive to build a brick house. But we're basically all living in the three pigs right now. And um, it's good to be in a brick house if you are. And so that I hope is like a lesson for all of us going forward, which is, you know, take time to build good systems from scratch. Don't just do the minimum you can to get away with it. Because man, now as everybody's suffering, the people who were in some way prepared for it, whether physically, mentally, financially, you know, if you've trained yourself to make good decisions, it's it, it, it's it's paying off. Um, I don't mean to disparage people who are not good, but you know, if you look at again, um, and, and there's some business leaders who recognize that flexibility is like maybe mm. the most important trait. And oh my God, is there a time when flex being able to be flexible has ever been more valuable? So I think we are going to learn some good lessons, although at a cost that you know you'd never want to impose on anyone if you didn't have to. Is it the three little pigs, or was it? Little Red Riding Hood and the and the wolf was it the big bad wolf that blows the house down? I can't remember now, but I'm gonna have to look that up after this podcast. Yeah, there you know all all I know is that there's just wolves all over those fairy tales, and they were never they were never the good guys. Although weirdly, I've never understood this. How come wolves are bad, but like mice and rats are good? Right, like, who, exactly. Who made, who made that decision anyway. I know we need to go back to these storytellers. Um, yeah. but but you know, in kind of talking about the ways that business businesses can think about, oh, well, this is how COVID impacted my company. And maybe we didn't have everything in place that we could have had. As we're looking at, you know, past economic crises and what they teach us, how can we take lessons from today in the current, you know, state of the economy today that will put us on better footing moving forward? Well, um, look, I think, one thing we're seeing right now is that you need to spend your way out of this kind of crisis. Um, Every economist that I've talked to since this began, it's basically come around to the same uh, analogy, which is World War II. It's like, it's not the time to worry about, um, you know, deficits and spending and so on. So, you know, I look at businesses that think a little bit differently about their uh, just their general operating practice. Um, I look at, you know, we recently had on the show um, Reed Hastings, the one of the founders and co-CEO, I guess, of Netflix. And again, it goes back to the flexibility thing. Now, again, I don't know how much to believe when someone writes a business book, they, they tend to highlight their highlights. And, you know, I, I have no idea if they're really as good at this as, as, it, as it sounds. But there's, there is a huge value, again, in building that sort of flexibility so that 
problem solving and decision making are not in these narrow, 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 um, you know, channels or tunnels, I think, you know, I think there's just been a lot of management advice and management consulting over the years that suggests that there are recipes essentially. And I sometimes think about this in like the success literature, like a lot of people will read, you know, a, a book by or about Warren Buffett or by or about Bill Gates or by or about Jeff Bezos. And they think, oh, well, I'm gonna follow. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do a lot of the things that they did. And ultimately that will work for me. And I think that's exactly backwards. I think that yeah. most people who succeed, not just at that massive scale that those people have, but people who succeeded anything, it's due to a whole lot of different inputs. It's also due to a lot of luck, but it's also due to um, anomalies or particularities that like you and I have totally different set of preferences, abilities, and so on. So I think that this whole idea of trying to write recipes for um, decision-making and healthy businesses is a, is a little bit over-appreciated and overstated. And I think that being able to solve problems on the go, to think on your feet, to fail, and to use the information from that failure to to do better the next time is incredibly important. Like failure alone, I, I find such an interesting topic because it's such, it's considered such a, I mean, and I realize this has changed. I mean, Silicon Valley has certainly changed this idea that fail fast, fail well, that, that has become a mantra for some people. But I think in a lot of circles, any kind of failure is considered something just to be not discussed anymore. Whereas in fact, failure contains incredibly useful information. So if you talk to any scientist who's ever done any kind of experiments, no one's expecting to succeed on experiment one or five or 10. You have to be willing, this is hundreds and hundreds, thousands of, of times to get to the best, the best version of it. So I think that um, being willing to experiment a lot, being willing to fail a lot. I look at the story of the two scientists who essentially invented CRISPR and won the Nobel Prize just recently. Like, the story of that is totally nuts. It was like this bacteria that was found like in a cave in some water that they were looking for other stuff. And I don't remember all the details. I don't remember any of the details actually. But when you look at the way the scientific mind works to do research, I think if we could import a little bit or maybe even more than a little bit of that into a way that, that business mind works to solve problems, it would be great because there's way too much just I do what I do because that's what the last person in this chair did. And yeah. you know, that's a great way to be mediocre, but it's not a great way to be awesome. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, all those business books of years past definitely didn't anticipate <laughs> what's happening in the world right now. And, and therefore, we're all kind of just <laughs> winging it. You know, we're all just doing the best that we can with what we've got and for what works for our company. So I, I, yes. I think that's, that's great, um, great advice. Um, now with working from home, there have been an onslaught of meetings, um, in this transition, you actually recorded an episode on meetings and why they, for lack of a better word, kind of suck. How do we make, (laughs) how do we make our meetings better, both in real life when we get there, but also on zoom? What advice do you have? Yeah. So meetings generally are pretty bad. Most people don't like them. Although 
most people, if you say, how would you like to have no meetings? They don't like that either. So, right. so we do like the interaction. So yeah. So I think, I think the big reason that meetings historically are pretty bad is because it's a little bit related to what we we're talking about a minute ago. It seems to be something that we should do because it's always been done. And I'm not saying that traditions and customs aren't good. There's a lot of good reason that we do things over and over again, but the quality tends to degrade when you do something without thinking about it very much. So some of the mistakes that are made in meetings are they're usually way too long. There are a lot of meetings called that aren't truly essential. What makes a meeting essential, you know, or what makes a a meeting better is to have a a real agenda, a firm specific agenda, not a recycled agenda. In other words, if you have your every Thursday afternoon trafficking meeting to discuss how these projects are moving through, and it's the same every Thursday, and basically everybody pulls up the same schedule that they've been working from the previous weeks, that's going to be a pretty bad meeting. I think the best meetings are what the scholarship says about good meetings is that the best meetings are the ones that are called to answer a really specific question or to address a really specific problem. Brainstorming is, I think, probably the most overrated function of meetings, Um, although meetings are often called because people don't have an idea and you want to produce it. But um, the evidence seems to be pretty good that people are better at actually thinking in smaller groups or on their own than they are in a big meeting. But, but then there are things that meetings are good for, which is like feedback. Like it's good to try out a solution, discuss solutions to problems and, and see what the feedback is in the room rather than having it sit dormant in an email thread for a long time. So you're right, you know, meetings are up. 13% um, during COVID, most of them virtual now. And then there's a whole new set of problems that virtual meetings have. Like people just, you know, because they are, they know that they're visible, they're kind of feel like they're counted and, you know, that they're contributing. Whereas in fact, it's even easier to loaf um, on, a, on a Zoom call than it is in a, in a room. So, and you can also multitask a lot easier and get away with it on a Zoom call than you can in, in a meeting where if you're looking at your phone, somebody will see you. So, you know, one piece of advice I really like is shorter meetings, weird times, like announce it's going to be meeting from, you know, 201 to 219. And, and that gives it a kind of specificity. And also what the meeting scholars say is worth trying is silence in meetings. It doesn't just need to be a pure Zoom chat fest where everybody feels compelled to be filling up the space with words. Mm-hmm. And that if you want to do some brainstorming, do it collectively in quiet on a shared doc and then come back and triage. And the last thing I would say is, and this is something where I don't know whether Zoom would make this easier or harder. It's hard for me to say. A lot of people just aren't suited to meeting culture. Meeting culture tends to reward people who are noisy and confident. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people who have great ideas are neither of those. And so if you're the meeting leader, you need to find a way to include all ideas, even from the the quiet people. Um, And that's, I think, something that most of us aren't great at doing yet. There's enough uncertainty to go around right now. NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. 
With NetSuite, we give you financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place, so you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere, with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence, because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com USA. Don't wait. Get your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com USA. netsuite.com USA. I'm guessing that my boss, Fritz Nelson, who actually has done a Q&A with you in the past, but um, I'm guessing he listened to that episode because <laughs> this is the exact advice I am. I mean, obviously I'm the host of a podcast. I am a talkative, noisy, very loud human. And in, <laughs> in one of our reviews, he said, you have great ideas, but sometimes you got to share the floor with other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really, I was like, you know what? There is beauty in silence, not just silence in the meeting, but silence for the individuals participating. If, you're, if your answer, if your you know, recommendation isn't going to really add that much, then, then just let somebody else that might have a better idea handle it. So look, I have the same problem you do. I, <laughs> you know, I was, I'm the youngest of eight kids. So I didn't oh really gosh. get, I didn't really get to talk that much until I was out of the house and so now it's hard to shut me up. And, and, and I appreciate that. But I do know in the rare instances when I am in charge of running the meeting, it is just so much better for your team, but also for you. Like, take advantage of the brain power in that room. Like, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm anti-meeting generally. And the reason mm-hmm. is this. If you just think about it as resources and, you know, opportunity costs, if you're asking 20 people to come together for an hour to have a meeting, and you just say, well, that's okay, that's 20 person hours. Now, what would happen if I took those 20 person hours and divided it back by 20 and just said to all 20, I want you to go and spend an hour thinking. First of all, most of us, our thinking mechanisms are in really bad shape, like, because we don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, meetings are often, they're supposed to be bad ideas, but they're often a substitute for thinking. Thinking is really hard. If I, if I have an extended bout of intense just thinking for like 15 minutes, I'm exhausted. That's why like walks, you know, walks have been proven historically and scientifically to be an unbelievable idea generator. And they, nobody's really sure why, but one suspected reason is you're, you kind of trick yourself into thinking because you think that you're actually walking. But what you're really doing is you're just thinking on your feet. But another explanation potentially is that when you're walking, your brain is involved in this fairly complex mapping uh, procedure where you're figuring out like where I'm going to go. Do I want to go there? Have I been there before? How long do I want to go? And your mind is in this kind of gear that is a sort of thinking gear. It's, it's in, you know, it's engaged in that way. And that somehow it seems that that is either parallel or contiguous to the gear that produces a lot of ideas. Cause if you look again through history, scientists, artists, all different kinds of people who've come up with ideas, they all prescribe walking kind of constantly. And I think it's just because, again, it's a, it's a way to think without sitting in your chair and thinking, oh boy, this feels awkward that I'm not actually talking or writing a memo or something. So I think that actually 
for most of us, the single best tool we have to do our jobs better is sitting in our head all the time. And we just don't use it very much, our creative thinking mind. And if you can find a way to, you know, work your way up to that, build a new habit, or even trick yourself into just spending more time thinking, then when you come to a meeting, you'll actually have ideas that are worth talking about rather than just, you know, talk for the sake of talking. Yes. Love that. And I am noting that to myself in my little (laughs) things to remember, Kendall, and the next time you go into a meeting. Um, You know, you've also devoted a ton of time and research on what you call data fluency, which is, of course, so important in our world. What are some of the things that can help make us data fluent? So I guess it starts with, you know, being a little bit good at math. But when I say math, don't be scared. I mean, we're talking about arithmetic, essentially, not higher order math. I I feel that um, the single best thing that would make more people happier in their lives and more data fluent for society would just understand probability a little bit. So I'll go back to the previous election when Donald Trump upset Hillary Clinton And Nate Silver, who is the famous, you know, politics statistics guy with 538, his Mm -hmm. site, which was was then and still is really the site that most people who are into this thing look to. And I think his site had predicted a probability of something like, I don't remember now, between 71 and 78% for a Hillary Clinton victory. And Mm -hmm. then... Um, when Trump won, which was a surprise to just about everyone who had ever been on CNN, at least, you know, um, they said, oh, my God, Nate Silver, he's supposed to be so smart. What an idiot. He got it totally wrong. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is he said there was like between a 21 and a 27 percent chance that this outcome would happen. What does that mean? That means that if, if you were to roll these dice 100 times, 21 times they're going to come up as what you are are guessing. Is that a great, would you bet on that? Maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't mean that it's an impossibility. I think that's just one example of many, 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 many where people misunderstand what probabilities really are. And I think the biggest area where this hurts us is in the difference between risk and uncertainty. So, you know, if you ask most people, like, you know, what are the chances that this terrible event might happen, a hurricane or an earthquake or global financial cataclysm or whatever? So there's a lot of confusion between what's risky, you know, what's a risk and what's uncertainty. Uncertainty means that something bad might happen, but you really have no idea whether it's a a one in a hundred chance, one in a thousand, one in a million, one in 10. Risk means that there's a a bad event that can happen, but that you can measure it. And so you need to distinguish what's the difference between the two. And when it's one that you can measure, you need to measure it and price it. That's what insurance firms do. And when it's uncertainty, don't pretend that you know whether or not it's going to happen. Humans don't like uncertainty. We tend to make really, really poor decisions when we're faced with uncertainty. And I think that's one of the trickiest things about the pandemic right now. There's so much we don't know that we tend to make idiotic predictions and guesses and decisions about the future. And I get it. It's daunting. But if you can think of it in more of a risk frame, 
which is what is the probability that there will be a successful vaccine based on the science that we know and that the vaccine will have appropriate uptake and that this virus will be defeated within, let's say, a year from now. I think you can probably put a pretty decent range on that. And I think that becomes a lot less paralyzing than, oh my gosh, this is terrible. We don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, being numerate is really helpful. I think that kids actually, in a weird way, even though they don't know that much math, they kind of get a sense of risk. Like, yeah, I'm going to take my bike over this ravine jump because, you know, I think I can make it. And, yeah. you know, sometimes they're wrong, but like it's, it's like learning how to measure your own risk is really useful. And I think that um, we tend to get, um, you know, adults tend to be a little overcautious sometimes and a little over risky at other times. But if you, that's the, to me, that would be the single best use of getting good at math and getting good at data fluency is to assess what a real risk is. I, I love that because I think that's something I, I spend a lot of time interviewing our, our customers here at NetSuite. And, you know, one of the biggest themes was either we we made decisions out of fear yeah. or we at least saw the decisions that we could have made out of fear. And I think to make more logical business decisions rather than those based yeah. about, uh, out of fear, especially right now, is just, is just so important. Um, and I think that's another lesson we learn, right? I agree. Although, look, I don't mean to to deny that emotions are real and fear is real. Like, you know, when the markets crashed toward the beginning of COVID, mm-hmm. the U.S. stock markets crashed, I think it was maybe 45-ish percent. I mean, that takes a certain kind of temperament to say, oh, I know they're coming back. I'm going to buy, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to sell my house and buy stocks now. That takes a real temperament that I certainly don't have. So I don't, I don't blame anyone for responding to fear or excitement or optimism or any of these things. But, you know, the whole, you know, the beauty of economics and behavioral economics is learning to balance the emotions with rationality and learning to spot your own biases you know, learn where you make bad calls because of your emotions so that you can compensate for them. But look, I'm not saying it's easy. If, if it were easy, I wouldn't have a job because what I mostly <laughs> do is identify where people don't get it right and try to, you know, find smart people who can tell us how to get one, two, five percent better. But it's not like we're getting 100 percent better. Right. I mean, and it goes back to what you said at the beginning of this podcast is if you have certain processes, certain things in place, you know, if you were scenario planning at the very beginning of this and forecasting and looking ahead and continuously doing so throughout the last seven months, then, then, you know, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for a more logical response than one out of fear. Couldn't agree more. But anyway, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the NetSuite podcast. We were thrilled to have you. It's uh, it's an honor to interview you and and hopefully we'll uh, hear more from you soon. Maybe, maybe one day we'll have you back on. <laughs> Thanks, Kendall. I really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much to Stephen Dubner for joining us on this legendary episode of the NetSuite podcast. Great insight that we can all learn from. I I love that note about being more data fluent. You know, a little math never hurt anybody. I also want to shout out to our editing crew over at Lampstand and all of you for tuning in. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Bye. You just listened to the NetSuite podcast. Be sure to tune in every week with more NetSuite developments, stories, and insights into the benefits of one integrated system to help you run your business.